AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for July 26, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined uh, remotely by Patrick McKenna. Welcome back, Patrick. It's been some time since we've seen you here, and uh, I'm guessing the weather in Seattle is much better than it is here, or at least cooler than it is in New Jersey. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, Brian. I am taking a week off, and I am actually in the Cascade Mountains in a town called Bering, uh, Washington. It's about 20 minutes uh, from Stevens Pass. So I can tell you the entire uh, western part of Washington right now is probably the best part of the country. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I was guessing correctly. Well, welcome back. Glad to have you here. And we have Matt Kaiser here. Welcome, Matt. Glad to it's good be. to see you again. And John Hogeboom. Back again. Back again. I'm Brian Rexrode. And Patrick, let's go to you first. And, uh, you know, I guess uh, DEF CON is coming up pretty soon. We're hoping to provide a little bit of coverage on this, but there's an activity for just about everybody here. Tell us more. Yeah. So we've got Hacker Christmas coming up, of course. Black Hat and DEF CON start next week. Uh, and AT&T is once again returning to sponsor an event that's incredibly special. It's called Roots Asylum. And what Roots Asylum is, is a nonprofit dedicated to teaching kids around the world about how to love being white hat hackers. It happens during DEF CON on August 5th through the 7th. And DEF CON attendees are encouraged to bring their kids. Uh, it's typically kids between 8 and and 16 who are really getting a lot of benefit from the event. Uh, and last year we had about 300 kids attending. Um, this year we're expecting just as many. So if you are attending DEF CON and you have children uh, who are interested in learning about security, I would definitely encourage you to bring them. It is a kids event, so there are no random parents wandering around. You, you have to come in and, and walk your kids through the different uh, labs and talks that are there. Mm -hmm. In addition to sponsoring the event, uh, we do provide some learning labs. Uh, one of the labs that we've been running for several years now is something called the Junkyard. And as a bunch of engineering nerds, I'm sure we all look back fondly on our first experiences tearing open computers and breaking mm -hmm. them and seeing what's inside them. Uh, so at the Junkyard, we bring lots of old equipment that kids can disassemble and see what's look, uh, what's working on the inside. Some of the kids end up repurposing some of the hardware. So we've seen kids... Uh, take servos from printers and make personal fans. We've seen kids develop uh, personal iPhone speakers based on PC speakers that were removed from old computers. So there's just lots of cool things that the kids can disassemble. And then uh, we have one other cool thing, which is uh, we do a lab called Be a Security Professional for a Day. And so if you have kids that are really starting to think that they might want to learn about computers in a more advanced way and want to do some security work, uh, we have a pen testing lab where the kids can uh, they get a, a, a higher letter and they're invited to do some research on a new vulnerability that they heard about, uh, that the boss heard about, and they want them to see whether or not there's any servers in the network that are vulnerable to it. So the kids go get to do some scanning, identify a web server, and determine whether or not it's vulnerable. Uh, they even get to fight with the developer who says, I never write insecure code. And so they get to prove that the vulnerability is active on the web server as well. 
and then we also do a little bit of security operations work. So the kids are going to be able to see what it looks like when a web server is accessed in real time uh, and when it's compromised and how we uh, harden those machines so that the kids don't, uh, that the ser- servers don't get tipped over. So uh, in addition to that, Facebook puts on a capture the flag event for the kids. Uh, we've had Mark Rogers, who's one of the, the security experts who consults for Mr. Robot, uh, do talks at Roots Asylum. We've had Whit Diffie. I mean, there's just a lot of really cool people that have done things. Um, Corey Doctorow as well. So it's a really, really great event for kids who are starting to think that they might be really interested in, in technology and in particular security defense. All right. Very cool. And what better way to spend the tail end of the summer just before school starts than to uh, accompany uh you know, a parent or, or a partner over to the uh, over, over to this event and uh, learn some things on the way. Get a little acclimated for school, right? Sure. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. The, I'm sure every Roots Asylum attendee is probably getting 50% better grades, but that's just my personal opinion. I have no facts <laughs> to back, back that up. But they have something for their What I Did This Summer essay, too. Absolutely. Right. That'll be cool. Very cool. And I guess as a final comment on this, the, uh, you know, hacking is one thing, and I'm not going to say everybody can do hacking because it definitely takes uh, some, you know, obviously some skills, some talent and motivation, but the white hat aspect of this, that is defending systems and uh, being in a position to do that is, uh, is a higher order. So it's, uh, it's good that there's an opportunity for kids to get acquainted with this and, uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, make a career of it. So thanks for bringing that. That's exactly right. And and, and and just to put a a bow on it, uh, the big reason why AT&T sponsors this is InfoSec mentorship is important. It feels like every month we're reading stories about kids who start exploring computers and end up getting in trouble uh, Mm -hmm. at school or maybe in their town because they didn't have a guide. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Roots Asylum gets these kids access to a mentorship network that makes sure that they're doing things in in the safe way and and understand kind of what's responsible and and what's over the line. So it's a great, great, great event. All right. Great. Thank you very much for that. And uh, so I guess another good news topic here, Matt. Sure. Um, So there's just recently, I believe it's a collaboration between law enforcement and several AV companies. The site nomoreransom.com, no, sorry, .org, just opened up. And what it is, it's a site with information about ransomware, mm-hmm. uh, some tools to help you decrypt your files for certain ransomware families if you happen mm-hmm. to be infected by one of them, and then also information about other families of malware and information on how to contact law enforcement if you are infected. And this is, this is an interesting idea. Most people, I think, at this point have sort of got used to the idea that this is just something that happens on the internet. People get infected. It's not a, they don't think of it as someone did this deliberate to me. Mm-hmm. This is a crime that was perpetrated against me. I should take it to law enforcement. So by encouraging that, I think it's really kind of positive that you'll show that, yes, this is a problem. The police become aware of it and hopefully get some resources dedicated mm-hmm. towards actually tackling it. Yeah, it's very good. The, uh, and and I, I, I have to reflect on your, your, your point about the, I think we've become numb over the years and years of evolving malware. You know, think back, what was it, the Da Vinci virus with the, on the floppy disk? That was that hackers. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the, but the, uh, the, the notion of infecting computers, we've become numb to the fact that that's a, mm-hmm. a, actually a crime. And uh, it really needs to be reinforced, and this is a, a good opportunity for organizations to help reinforce that and encourage folks to report it. And even if each case, I mean, obviously each case isn't going to be investigated, mm-hmm. but 
having good data in terms of trending about right. actual victims yeah. and the cost that it is uh, incurring on those folks to be able to recover from it is an important part of building a good criminal case and to uh, really get uh, influence around uh, making sure that those cases do get investigated. Right. Unless law enforcement can really quantify it well, mm -hmm. I don't think that they're in a good position to really take you know good action. Mm -hmm. So being able to have good quantification around how many uh, incidents there are and uh, you know assign monetary costs to that can really help them get more traction to mobilize uh, mm -hmm. around trying to solve this problem. So. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for bringing them, Matt. Okay, John, let's go to you and uh, pretty important patching activity going on with iOS this week. Yeah, so this is not unlike the stage fright vulnerability for Android last year, where when you received a text message that had a multimedia file, you could uh, do some remote code execution. Uh, but this is, in this case, it's in the Apple iOS, um, mm -hmm. and that covers not just uh, you know the iPhone, but also uh, the tablets, OS X, uh, their TV OS mm. has been patched for this, and the Apple Watch OS, which is, this is patched, uh, just so you know, nobody send me <laughs> any text messages. However, uh, basically the basic gist of this vulnerability is there is um, a vulnerability in uh, Apple's uh, Image I.O. API, uh, and if you send a TIFF file, I don't know if TIFF is the only format, but that's mm -hmm. the one they mention in the, in the uh, write-up on this. At least one. If you send a special, specially crafted TIFF file, when the parser, the image IO API goes to, you know, read that and render it onto the screen, it could execute a buffer overflow, which could lead to remote execution, code execution. Mm -hmm. Now, what privilege level you'd be at at that point, I'm not quite sure. You know, if you're going to be kind of in a sandbox still, but be able to access maybe other things in the messages mm -hmm. app. Um, or what, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it does cross more than just uh, instant messaging. That's one of the um, examples that they used, but uh, it can be in Safari, you know, in your browser, in the mail client, and probably mm -hmm. a bunch of other places wherever you have to render uh, an image. They do mention that the iMessage, as part of your SMS messaging or MMS messaging, uh, is an interesting avenue because your phone will attempt to render that uh, without you having an inter intervention. You know? Right, it'll, it'll put it right up right, on the notification display if you have that enabled. Right, and right. so that's a possibility. You don't have to do any action and the next thing you know. Right, so you know somebody could just blitz it out there. As far as I'm aware, uh, I haven't seen that this is actually being exploited uh, in the wild mm -hmm. that I'm aware of, uh, but there are patches available. It's 9.3.3 for your iPhone. Uh, so if you go check your iPhone, you should see that there's a patch available. The other interesting thing I thought, which I really haven't been tracking, you know, if you have an iPhone 4, not the 4S, 4S and up is covered with uh, OS 9.3.3, but 4 and older are not. So they kind of discontinued. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's completely discontinued, but they're still on iOS 7 for uh, the iPhone 4. Uh, so the patch is not available for those devices, which may be a reason to upgrade. Um, or find other means to do whatever mm -hmm. you need to do. Anyway, just one of those things uh, to make people aware of. Uh, the patch came out recently. I want to say it was either this week or last week. I think it was on the 18th, perhaps. 18th? So this is, okay. uh, it's been about a week now. Okay. But the, uh, the thing that I had noticed is oftentimes you'll get a notice that there is a patch to install or an upgrade to install. 
my experience has been I did not get a notice. I, I didn't either on my phone this time. I had to go in and actually look, and I see that it said that there's a patch available mm -hmm. and apply it. But a lot of times it'll tell me when I, at some point, I don't know, randomly, maybe when you plug in something to charge it, it goes and checks, but it usually tells me that there's mm -hmm. a new update. All right. So uh, go out and get that patch done before this becomes a uh, something that's actually in the wild because I'd have to anticipate that somebody's you know, at least taking a look at how they could take it. Well, certainly now that the patch is out, you know, once the patch is distributed, a lot of these guys can take that and reverse engineer to see what, what mm -hmm. was applied what in was this changed, patch yeah. to figure out how, how could I exploit that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, you know, there's just one little itch that I need to scratch. It is certainly reminiscent of the stage fright vulnerability uh, in that it is an image handling related vuln. Uh, but, you know, stage fright, the things that were interesting about stage fright weren't necessarily about the, the vulnerability in the code itself, but all of the side effects of the, the diversity of the Android ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, iOS is, is leading the industry in demonstrating how to do mobile updates. Uh, stage fright became complex because there were many orphaned devices and software libraries that weren't necessarily available on some of the earlier devices. So capabilities like ASLR, mm -hmm. uh, iOS, you know, just as long as people are practicing really good technology hygiene, applying your software updates, the story is, is very, very different. So image handling related, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't get too wrapped around the axle about whether or not it's like stage fright. There's similarities, but it's, it's, it's functionally very different. Okay. Well, and okay. actually, that's a very good uh, comparison and contrast. Thank you, Patrick. So with that, let's go to uh, Matt. And Matt, you've been busy reading. I have. And uh, I happen to be a fan of Bruce Schneier myself. Um, I, I think he has a, a lot of very good thought about security topics. So tell us about his latest book. Sure. So this is Data and Goliath. Subtitle is The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. It is not as radical as the title may make it sound. <laughs> I actually thought one of the most impressive things about the book is how well-researched it is. Mm. It's 241 pages of text in my copy and 123 pages of notes and citations. So when you start talking about surveillance and spying mm. and collection of data, people sometimes look at you and think you might be a little bit like conspiracy theory, woo-woo, nutty. But having these citations in here to back up the things that he's talking about really helps. Mm -hmm. um, I found it really interesting. It, it starts off with the way things are today. You mm -hmm. talk about government surveillance. You talk about corporate data mining and collection for advertising or other purposes. Mm -hmm. Talks about the effects of surveillance and then ends up with a discussion of what can we do about the problem. And not all of his suggestions were immediately apparent to me. Uh, I think the ones about limiting the information that a company collects are really good ideas, mm -hmm. especially in light of the number of data breaches we've had. Yeah. Had that data not been retained and stored improperly, or you know, if you don't need it to be around, mm -hmm. it's a liability in the fact that it exists in a single place. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's, the book is full of ideas, and uh, that was one of the most interesting ones for me. But going through and looking at the facts that you know, any device that has a processor in it has the ability to collect data, if it has storage, has the ability to store that data. And he used the phrase, data is the exhaust of the internet, which <laughs> it, it kind of makes sense. You know, as you go through a system and you, you, you interact with it, you create these yeah. logs. And on the one hand, as a security analyst, these logs are exactly the kinds of things that we use on a day-to-day -day basis to find out who's been infected, who's yeah. attacking our networks, and they have a purpose. But at the same time, 
I started thinking of them as how are they actually a liability in some cases. Mm -hmm. So retaining them for a significant amount of time does have a risk. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that I would absolutely recommend people read this book. It, I couldn't put it down. And I wrote so many pages of notes. Like I'm used to saying I wrote a lot of notes from these books. Show us your notes. <laughs> I, I do it Isn't by hand and it's chicken version. scratch. It's chicken scratch. But I wrote as many pages of notes as this as I did for some of the more technical ones just because mm -hmm. there's so many ideas I wanted to capture out of it. I would say that um, I would actually recommend two companion books to this mm -hmm. because he does talk about government surveillance. He does mention General Hayden mm -hmm. and the NSA. And Hayden's book, Playing to the Edge, actually gets a name check in here. Mm. And I would recommend that if you want sort of the counter story as to why the, you know, a government would retain data and do the things that it does, Hayden's mm -hmm. book is great. Mm -hmm. If you want more of an approach, because he he's sort of focuses on what he knows about the United States. Mm -hmm. If you want to know more about government surveillance outside the United States, Consent of the Networks uh, by Rebecca McKinnon, which I'm reading right now, covers a lot of those. So China, Russia, Iran. Mm -hmm. So. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I think I've started something here with my brain, and I'm, I'm reading more and more about these topics. I'm excited. All right. All right. Very good. You know, I think that's a, a, a very good endorsement. And um, uh, data is a liability. I think that's a very important thing. To, I, I tend to think of data as kind of the opposite or, or you know, kind of a, uh, a relation to sort of security policy. You know, mm -hmm. the tendency is to start a system, start a project, start an activity with a really simple, basic, and strong security policy. Mm -hmm. And then in time, all kinds of exceptions get made. You know, keep, and then you end up with this bloated set of rules that you really don't understand whether the system is secure anymore. And it's mm -hmm. kind of the same kind of thing with data. That is, you start out with a clear objective, and the tendency is to, well, let's add this, add that, and not necessarily even considering, particularly since storage is relatively cheap. Yep. It's easy to just kind of you know start accumulating things and uh, become you know sort of a uh, you know squirreling away a lot of things that aren't necessarily needed. So it's important to kind of go back, review what you're doing, making sure there's a policy around that, and that the data that you don't need is expiring. Sure, and and that you don't have feature creep as well, or mission yeah. creep is probably more accurate, saying I've got this set of data, I, j I collected it for mission A, mm -hmm. someone comes along and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, we've got mission B, we'd mm -hmm. love to have that data, and you lose some control over it, you, you, and some of the original yeah. good intentions behind why you collected it in the first place may get lost when it goes to mission B. Mm -hmm. yep. A lot of activities around that that we're performing to make sure that the data doesn't become a uh, become a problem more than it is a, uh, a beneficiary yep. to the organization. So, good comments there, Matt. Thank you. That's uh, I, I, I actually didn't realize that uh, Bruce had a new book out, and now that I know, <laughs> we're going to be on to get that book. So, you know, the next topic here is uh, actually there's a an ice you know lots of ISACs. That is, uh, what is it? Information security. I don't even know what the... I don't know what the AC stands for, <laughs> but it's a good point. Uh, shame on me for not knowing. But uh, basically, it's uh, organizations for sharing information about particular topics to be able to uh, help mutually benefit from protecting and It's usually their, centered their around activities. different industries, like mm -hmm. the financial Center around services around industries. Uh, there's multi-state. There's a, uh, right. the, the auto one here. There's a retail one for... Uh, predominantly, I think, focused on point-of-sale transaction-type mm -hmm. activities, um, a number of others. Nevertheless, the, uh, the focus here is on the auto industry as automobiles become more connected and uh, have more automation functions. Uh, they created an ISAC to be able to share information about this. And uh, they published it a, 
uh, a uh, best practices document, and I decided, you know, this uh, sparked my interest. I took a, re a view of it. It's not very big at this point. It's uh, basically an eight-page document, or at least uh, that was what I had access to. And, um, but, you know, it's understandable. This is a new organization. Uh, they have some, uh, and it's, it's understandable they would start with the basics. Uh, so I just thought I'd share a few things that I hope will, it will evolve into. And by the way, uh, we're a member of this organization. AT&T is uh, facilitating making uh, cars connected. And so uh, this is some input I've already provided to our organization and uh, I'll share with you here. First of all, I hope it'll become over time a little more prescriptive. That is, I think um, uh, that a best practices document, you know, it's not a requirement, but to be able to say more specifically how to design systems, how to implement those systems, and perhaps define some standards or cite some standards that already exist about how to do that uh, in a proper, appropriate way, and possibly be able to use that as a standard so that as manufacturers are selling cars, they can cite those standards and say, you know, we've met these criteria. It would be valuable to, uh, to be able to have some standards to reference, to be able to say that, you know, it's a selling point for uh, manufacturers. Uh, next item would be to have an architecture reference. That is, I think it's very, if you're going to talk about implementation, to have some references for architecture. And, you know, there are some re reference architectures and actually products and tools and protocols built around, you know, the controller area network for, uh, for cars and automation in cars. And so it makes sense. I say cars, but in auto industry in general. And so to take that architecture and overlay security recommendations for that uh, would make a lot of sense. So I think having a security reference architecture to overlay and then hopefully influence the products and protocols that are used in those systems. And then uh, last but not least here, I think uh, some topics like separation of control functions from perhaps other entertainment functions. I think that was one of the things that in the Charlie mm -hmm. Miller demonstration, yep, they right. showed that they went through the entertainment system into the control systems as a means to uh, do their demonstration. Authentication of messages, how do you do authentication and how to manage that, verify the integrity of those. And so they cannot be perhaps forged from remote sources, which I think is uh, another uh, thing that facilitated that attack and then, uh, or that demonstration of attack. And then uh, last but not least here, software update requirements, the, you know, verification of software, being able to perform over the air updates in critical cases, or at the very least have user applied updates, not necessarily to have to go into a dealership, make appointments and have a lot of rigmarole around that. So anyway, there's my thoughts. Uh, if you have any thoughts, please uh, share them with us. Any comments from you gentlemen here? Somebody needs to make a home automation and entertainment ISAC yeah. that covers like all these webcams, security camera DVRs and televisions and all these things people are sticking in their homes that are vulnerable. Yeah, that's perhaps actually a very good recommendation. I don't know if that's the right can... name for it, but something yeah. of that nature. Anyway. You know, that, that actually highlights just how impressive it is that the auto industry is really taking the bull by the horns here in this topic. Mm -hmm. I, I got to attend uh, CES this year and in the connected car environments, I was shocked at how many companies were there demoing connected car security capabilities and in particular providing consulting services to uh, the automotive industry for as they're developing these capabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, General Motor. I think it was in January this year, they announced a bug bounty for right. their automobiles. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting to compare and contrast where the auto industry is and how 
seriously they're taking this to some other obvious areas where people should have learned these lessons long ago and clearly are demonstrating that they just either don't care or are not there on point yet. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, you had a good, a really good idea. I think maybe it's time to come up with a, a playbook and say, you are now connecting the following high value type of device to the internet. Say, I don't know, refrigerators. Maybe it's step by step. Now it's now that you've gone this long. Now it's time to put up your ISAC. Now it's time to build these sorts of controls. Now it's mm-hmm. time to put in this legislation. Maybe once we see this a couple more times, we'll figure out that once you start thinking about actually designing the product, you have to also think about all of the security framework to be built around it. Yeah, that's a good point. The um, I, I think in some respects we perhaps don't anticipate what the next steps really need to be. Sure. Uh, I think you're suggesting that history kind of repeats itself and so we can learn from the history of other That's kind, kind of, of what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, after seeing the same sorts of things play out in IoT, yeah. going to home automation or going to connected car, I feel like mm-hmm. we might, if we've learned the lessons, we know the building blocks, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a good, a good point. I guess the one thing, and I'll just play counterpoint for a moment, that I've, in the ISACs in general, is that um, the the sharing process in itself is relatively labor intensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, because we really haven't automated the notion around sharing like insights. <laughs> I see. So that, yeah, that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big challenge in all mm-hmm. of this. That is, it, it can't be, it, the whole threat sharing industry can't be around sharing bad IP addresses because it's an intractable thing. It's something that can be worked around too easily. And so you really, the insights thing, so it's a very labor-intensive process. I think part of what uh, makes it more complicated is I don't think there are that many differences between, say, the auto industry in terms of connecting things versus, uh, you know, just any, any other type of IoT thing and mm-hmm. connecting things. There certainly are things that, you know, and that was really where I tried to base my recommendations here. There are certain things about security for connected cars that you want to do as a part of an architectural design thing, but the threats aren't really fundamentally different. So I think that's uh, one of the challenges that we have is that as more ISACs develop, it's great to have the interest group, but making sure that the information that's pertinent in one group gets to other groups effectively is one of the big challenges. All right, Matt, let's go to you. and. Um, this is an interesting vulnerability, so tell us uh, tell us a little more about it. Sure. So this is actually a vulnerability in World of Warcraft, and I know some people will smile and say, oh, it's another video game thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I maintain that any any system at all that has some sort of monetary value put into it by its users is a valid target. Mm-hmm. And World of Warcraft has made tons of money for Blizzard, and I really think that the value of an individual account on that system is, is worth something to be protected and probably worth for the attackers to attack. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, folks that are enthusiastic about it certainly see value in it. And so that's a, that's an important aspect of this as well. Sure. Yeah. So the attack that got laid out, I believe it was GData Software posted about this one. Uh, they found in the wild someone was trying to convince users to type a certain message into chat. Now, this message is actually a Lua command. And anybody who's played around with Warcraft and modding knows that Lua is the language they use to draw out the GUI. So it's very extensible, it's kind of cool. You can see that people have made add-ons over the years for the game because this support is there. So what this actually allows you to do is hook a function, uh, remove extra spaces, which does what you'd guess to do. You give it a string, it has extra spaces, it cuts them out and passes Mm -hmm. it on to the next thing. 
but they hook it and replace it with run script, which mm -hmm. also does what you think it does, takes the input and runs it as a script. It's kind of like an exec call in other languages. Mm -hmm. And since remove all extra spaces is run on all incoming chat commands, which is basically allows you to do is call run script on the contents of a message that somebody else controls. So this guy says, please run this command. It redefines that function. And the next thing he sends you is the exploit. And what that does is that actually backdoors a GUI element within the game and then resets the, the, what you just did to the output so you know to suggest, so suspect what's happening. After that, he gets his character within range of yours to trade, but since he controls your GUI, he runs something that automatically dumps all your golden items into his inventory and walks away. <laughs> so he's basically just robbed you from your own GUI, and mm -hmm. since the command came from your machine, it, it's valid. The system doesn't think anybody's cheating because, hey, you told them give them all the golden items. Right. And since players have had, you know, they'll pay real world money for items, they'll spend hours mm -hmm. and hours grinding in the game to get these, these things. Uh, this is a, you really are robbing this yeah, person. It's, it's not just a digital slugging. Yeah, it's yeah kind of. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is cyber hypnosis. You will give <laughs> me your money. Now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting because it still requires the user to type something stupid into their browser yeah. for, into their their chat for no good reason. Yeah. Blizzard has put in a little warning because I I think they want to keep it extensible, but they want people to know when this change is being made. It's like, hey, are you sure you want to make this change to your Lua environment? Right, right. And you have to say yes and understand mm -hmm. it. Uh, but I think we were talking before about there's been things like this where you trick someone into typing some code into their browser or, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's the same sort of social engineering. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. you'd tell someone, you know, type in this random string and they would go ahead and do it. But then again, I, I guess I've been in computer security right. too long. What you tell them before that is this will give you 100,000 gold or something. That's true. If yeah. you type this special and, you know, probably somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing types it in and then all of a sudden all their money's gone. <laughs> they might fall for that. Yeah. Hopefully not more than once. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah. So this is, I guess, another example of a case where we're blurring the distinction between data and code, mm. right? Yeah, that's true. And, um, you know, it, 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 it reminds me of uh, the von Neumann computer architecture from way back when. I think this dates back to the 50s, by the way, so it's even before my time, but where the, uh, the architecture was actually deliberately hardware program space was separated from data space. I think there was actually purpose in that at the time. That is, if you remember, well, you may have seen pictures of back when where the program was actually on cards. Mm -hmm. Is this when you had to take the vacuum tubes and like use those <laughs> yeah, two? Yeah, you had to you had actually wiggle them and make sure that they were working. Get the bugs out? <laughs> Get the bugs out, yeah. Well, those were the relays, yes. But the, uh, it, there, you know, the program was on cards, it would load in the, in the into the system and then you'd actually execute, you know, sort of out of uh, data memory. But ultimately what it came down to is that there was a clear separation between the two and then in time basically that blurred. We, you know, combined the memory programs can run into and that's where we get into data and that's where our data can run into programs. Right. That's where we get the buffer, buffer overflows, overflows and, yeah. and uh, situations where you can't really tell if it's data or a program and so it can execute what was, what was data. So. This is one of the uh, challenges we have this, with this sort of thing. Um, we were talking, Michael Singer, one of our colleagues, is uh, he's going to come on. We're going to talk a little bit about the notion of hopefully being able to try to reverse that trend. That is, we tend to be victims of data that gets treated as code. Perhaps we can use 
code in data to help protect that data. So it's a, mm. Do you it's mean a embed, like embed special code in data that sort of patches the problem when it gets? Uh, something along okay, those lines. I want to see the, how this uh, To make the out. data a little bit smarter about itself and to perhaps help. Smart data. Itself. Yeah, smart data. So Interesting. Anyway. Mark that. <laughs> you know, there's another angle to this, and, and I just I just feel like if, if people are parents, if you've got kids that are online gamers between like 10 and 14, this type of vulnerability, this kind of uh, attack is actually really, really common. Mm -hmm. And most kids are super vulnerable to being told, hey, if you just type in this one secret command, it allows you to hack your account and do all mm -hmm. these really cool things. Mm -hmm. And then they inevitably get hurt. Mm -hmm. So right. I, I think a thing that maybe members of our audience should consider is if you do have kids that are into the online gaming community, the this WoW exploit, this is actually pretty common. There's been all sorts of Steam exploits and and, and things affecting even Xbox Live games and, and PlayStation Network games. So uh, maybe a thing to take away here is that uh, a guidance you should give your children is strangers on the internet are always bad and many times they will tell you secret key commands that you could enter in so you can do special things. But most of the time they're they're going to do something that you're not going to like. So don't listen to strangers on the internet when they tell you to type in exotic looking commands in a command prompt. And it doesn't even have to be exotic, but I think your point is well made. Very good, Patrick. Thank you. Okay. And with that, I think we'll go to some more traditional flaws. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm looking at you, but I'm not referring to uh, you. Oh, well, I am, I am very <laughs> flawed, so I don't take it personally. Um, so Oracle released their latest patch set here. And one of the things in this um, release, there are a bunch of uh, vulnerabilities, I think some 270 or something, but they're six or so, I think, that were remote code execution. Mm -hmm. um, some of those are in what's called Oracle's Outside in Technology Software Developers Kit, which is a set of libraries for working with various document formats um, or other file formats in general. Do you have to be outside when you use it? Because uh, no, I know a lot of programmers so. <laughs> who it wouldn't work for. Okay. That's true. Most of them are in a cave somewhere, uh, coding way, like myself. In any event, um, that's also, uh, that toolkit or those SDKs are part of the Oracle Fusion middleware, mm -hmm. which is uh, licensed to other developers to use in their products. So if they need to work with these file formats, it's this set of libraries to do that. It's convenient. So a lot of um, third-party software development companies have used these libraries, this uh, Oracle Fusion middleware, in their products. So that's where the problem is. So now you've got this middleware that's in a lot of other companies' products, and there's some interesting ones, like Microsoft Exchange it's in. Novell GroupWise, IBM WebSphere, which is uh, mm -hmm. you know, a, a servlet container. Um, Google Search Appliance, uh, Avira Antivirus for Exchange, which is the antivirus that runs on the Exchange server, and even Guidance Encase, which is a forensic tool. So mm -hmm. if you know you use forensic tools, now I'm forensic a machine, I might be trying to use their preview mode. Uh, for their document thing that they have here, and now I'm able to get compromised just from that. So that's a kind of scary, they threw a couple of scary ones in there in the example. Um, uh, one of the things they do mention is on Microsoft Exchange servers, if you're uh, familiar with the web-ready document viewing, which is that preview mode when you're viewing an email in Outlook, um, mm -hmm. and you can click a tab. If you had an attachment of a PDF or something, it'll kind of show you. That's using this library. So if somebody sent you a malicious attachment that tried to exploit that, potentially you could uh, have that happen. 
They mentioned a few other things. Cisco Talos did the research on this. They actually have a really good blog post uh, about how you could exploit it. The one I thought was really interesting is that if you have a Microsoft Exchange server that does have the Avira antivirus for Exchange installed, just sending an email through with uh -huh. an attachment that's weaponized, the email server, the antivirus software, is going to look at this and say, well, does this look like it's malware? And it's going to detonate the exploit and uh, trigger that vulnerability in that software mm -hmm. development kit and get the server infected, which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, and uh, this is a, this is theoretical. It's theoretical. I don't know that they've actually seen this exploited in the wild, but Cisco Talos Group had done some uh, probably some proof of concept to make sure that mm -hmm. this would actually function this way uh, as part of their reporting. So I guess one of the things I was thinking about with this, and you know, a lot of us struggle with this, is when you're doing software development, you have middleware. Do you have good processes in your environment to know? Especially when you're a big company, you might develop a lot of different things. Do you know where various middleware and other third-party libraries that you're importing are being used such that when things like this come to light, mm -hmm. you can understand you know, where in your software development or in your enterprise you're impacted? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, don't know, I just thought it was uh, Yeah, I think this is uh, the whole notion around code reuse has been a very positive thing, but from a security standpoint, it's a challenge and that you really have to under, have an understanding of where that code reuse is taking place. Um, I think the, uh, the notion around having a software build of materials so that you have some of, of a, uh, an inventory of what's in the different applications and perhaps if you're trying to manage the vulnerability patching and the tracking and the auditing centrally, you'd have a central database that manages those and uh, would need to be updated pretty regularly to be able to support it. So it's a relatively, uh, uh, I mean, it's a- And everybody needs to, all the development teams need to adhere to that policy. Yeah. Even if it's a small little thing, you know, that might not necessarily be widely distributed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's part of the new challenge in the world is, you know, as more things transition from a, an appliance-based world that's vendor supported into a virtualized world, uh, these are things that need to be accommodated or taken into account to make sure that the, uh, the virtualized world is at least as secure as the, uh, as the traditional appliance-based world. Right, so. right. All right. Very and good. then the thing about these middleware things is, you know, now that Oracle has released it, you are vendors for all these other products that might use mm -hmm. it. You might not even know if those are being implemented in various products. You, you have to wait for them to kind of tell you, hey, we have a patch for this. And it's because of this, you know, other middleware component we were using as part of mm -hmm. our product that we're delivering to you. So, you know, I guess one aspect of this, I'm perhaps a little slow to learn, but you know, I I still have this this stereotype in my mind when I hear the word Oracle, I think of database management system. Yeah. And uh, but I think uh, it, you know, Oracle has diversified significantly. Yes. And I think a big part of that diversification, and perhaps related to this, was when they acquired Sun Microsystems. Yes. And you know, Sun Microsystems was in the process of transitioning into basically a software company at the time. And so there are a lot of tools like this that were drawn in as a part of, the, uh, as a part of that acquisition. I don't think they're in the server business anymore at all, or, or certainly not as much. I, I guess they perhaps are still selling, but it's all like- I don't really know, to be honest the with you. They're, away, they've they're got their uh, hands in a lot of pots though, because yeah, you know, they've of, got uh, database. They've got operating, uh, well, I don't know if it's really, they've got languages like Java. Mm -hmm. They've got, um, 
even the isn't VirtualBox? Isn't the virtualization or is that? I think that's yeah, VirtualBox and 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 not only that, there's a, actually a they acquired a company called Techalek a, a couple of years ago, which is a mm-hmm. mobility infrastructure provider. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's really good to underline the point here, Brian. Oracle is involved in a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So. Uh, it's a, it's important to keep an open mind <laughs> when you hear the word Oracle and consider all of the very uh, aspects of what they may be influencing in your IT environment. So on, uh, thank you for that, John. Yeah. And uh, on a wider note, perhaps uh, Matt, maybe you can share with us. I took a look at the uh, at the Mr. Robot episode. I think just last night, mm-hmm. and uh, I have to admit I don't pick up on all the subtleties that you pick up on. So no. I guess first. A spoiler alert for those that absolutely seen it. spoiler alert. Cover your ears because I'm going to be mentioning some can things. I, can I disconnect here? Yes, y- you can. You might want to. You absolutely might want to. <laughs> or mute. Or mute your ears. <laughs> All right. So here we go. You've been warned. Um, so we're going to talk about the latest episode of Mr. Robot, um, and that's the tech that gets mentioned in it. Um, there's a scene at Romero's house, who's one of the members of F Society. Um, you show up and you can clearly see Kelly Linux on his screen, which I think mm-hmm. has happened before in the show, but worth mentioning because, yes, this is probably the gold standard for penetration testing mm-hmm. distributions, so thumbs up for them for bringing that into the show. Um, there is a point at which uh, an, an agent of the law plugs a device in to try and perform forensics, and the machine catches fire. <laughs> um, I assume this is, this is a thermite explosion. I've seen... Um, work online to try and design something that does something like this. Mm-hmm. In particular, there was an episode of the show called The Broken, which was probably way ways back now, where they built a thermite bomb for a laptop to mm-hmm. self-destruct it. So it's completely feasible to do this mm-hmm. and take a little bit of, of tinkering inside and find a way to trigger that explosion, but there's definitely enough electrical power inside of a, a computer to trigger some sort of detonator to kick off a thermite explosion, which would totally melt the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, there's a scene where they're talking about a, a website and Bitcoin hot and cold wallets are mentioned. And I was impressed by this because this is pretty cool. The concept of hot and cold wallets, for those who don't know, hot wallets are the ones that are stored in some sort of online exchange and are accessible very easily. Um, cold wallets are when you have the, the wallet information stored offline. It's not part of some sort of exchange system. Mm-hmm. And hot wallets are obviously more convenient. Cold wallets are more secure. Mm-hmm. So. Um, having that discussion and saying the guy, the, the, was, the guy was basically complaining he didn't know enough about it to, to do what he needed to do for, that was being asked of him. Um, and, and Bitcoin is a little confusing, and uh, we talked about it when I did my book review a while back, so I was, I was impressed by that little reference as well. I thought it was a little interesting, too. I'm not quite sure if, it's, if I'm interpreting it right, but it seems like there might be a little organized crime around this Bitcoin That's stuff. my take uh, the, on it as well. The, I can't think of his name now, the character oh, no, that's... Yeah. Uh, uh, but in any event, it's um, it, it was interesting that he's kind of like the muscle, like trying to like, hey, you know, turn over the Bitcoin keys for. Uh, well, that's the the thing about that character, and I, again, I, I regret that I can't remember his name, is that he he seems like such a very reasonable human being, and he's very he's he's sort of like the benevolent boss. But you realize during that scene that there's a lot more going on because the way right, that right. they shoot that one shot. And you see the first half of the guy's face, and then you see the second right, half. Right, and it's like, oh, right. all right, now I know what this is about. Um, there's an Alexa. There's a couple of Alexa mentions in there. There's a good joke. Uh, mm-hmm. Alexa, when is the end of the world coming? And it has an answer. Um, I like that a lot. The one of the more interesting parts of the show was the the fact that Elliot's mind is deteriorating, and his right. mental illness is shown as 
computer glitches. Mm -hmm. Either there, there's some definite kernel panic screens that are legitimately ones. There's like a, an SE Linux crash at some point that they flash up on the screen because he's starting to lose it. Mm -hmm. uh, another one that I liked a lot was he's watching the basketball game and it starts to repeat itself and then sort of degrade the quality. It's like you're watching a YouTube video as you mm -hmm. lose your connection to the internet and it starts starting to downgrade your quality of the video over right. and over. So that was a neat one as well. well. And it goes a little further than that. There were, he, he was, as he was talking to himself, he's talking about how he's trying to, to get his, his mental state back into, you know, at least under control. He's always talking about trying to get control and he's saying, you know, I, I need to, and he's talking about using regular debugging yep. te techniques. Right. You know, I need to you, put you an interrupt in here. He did a break say point. I set a breakpoint right. and tried the he's next thing. He's applying computer, like he's basically uh, turning himself into a computer or right. like making that as an analogy. To which I, when he, you know, mentioned a kernel panic, I, you know, anybody who uses computers, like, if I had a kernel panic in my brain, I was like, oh, God, that's really bad. <laughs> yeah. And my wife was like, what? What does that mean? I don't understand. I said, oh, yeah, it takes a that's like recovery. the worst thing that could happen in your brain. <laughs> anyway, so I thought it was a good analogy yeah. uh, for his condition. And the, so, the, the one last thing I did want to mention is I'm a bit of a movie music buff, and they did use a music cue from Philip Glass, mm -hmm. which I recognized immediately because I'd seen it not in the original film, but in the Truman Show, where mm. it gets used. It's called Mishima, I think, is the movie it's from. But for me, that, that always sort of does it. I know that you know, the creators of the show are paying attention. They're, they're referencing mm. back to other things. It's kind of cool. Right. Well, thanks for that, Matt. And uh, I, you know, I, I got a little more out of the show because of you, so I sure. appreciate it. <laughs> all right, let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, first of all, we're looking at the top 10 most probe ports. This is actually from uh, July 25th. And, Oh my gosh. Yeah. What we have is port 53413 actually, I think, winning the prize in the top here. It's moved up 18 spots, actually taking over the slot that uh, port 23 had been holding for quite some time here. So uh, we're going to obviously take a little closer look at that as we go forward. Uh, not a whole lot of movement here. We saw port 25 move up a little bit uh, in terms of ranking five slots, but uh, I think uh, we had covered actually scanning activity on the uh, email ports as basically research organization activity, uh, less of a concern from a security standpoint, although you want to be cognizant of that if you see that probing activity on your network. Uh, but nevertheless, um, that is uh, that port 25 activity is consistent with that. Followed by port 22 TCP, 53 UDP, uh, 80 TCP, and then we see uh, 3389 showing up on here, and uh, we're going to take a little closer look at that a little bit later on here. Port 143, that's associated with email activity, and then 1911 TCP, I always forget this one, but it's at uh, Industrial Control uh, Protocol. It seems oh, to be pretty consistently yeah, uh, on there. It's Tritium, also, Niagara, Fox, right. something like that. Yeah. Yes, and, and that's, uh, again, associated with research activity. And then uh, we're seeing Port 21 FTP showing on the list here. Uh, looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, uh, we have port 23 still holding its spot at the top of the list here. In this case, uh, more than 690,000 unique sources. That's actually down. We saw a peak of around, I think, 840,000, maybe even, uh, perhaps even a little bit higher than that. And then followed by 53,413. This is uh, on the order of about 260,000 sources. Uh, and that's kind of curious because on an hourly basis, we're only seeing on the order of about 20,000 or so, you know, 20 to 30,000 sources. So that shows that there's a significant rotation throughout the course of the day. This, this is actually a collimation of 24 or hours. Or they could just be spoofing. 
the source. Well, actually, that's a very good point, John, that the, uh, the, in this particular scenario, if the activity is coming from a network that does not enforce ingress filtering, it could be spoofed source addresses. I'm not so saying they don't it is, but it could be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. Um, and so one of the things that kind of comes about, we'll look at it a little bit more closely as we uh, look at the port 53 stuff uh, a little bit later on here. Uh, no others that are really shown significant. Port 445 is next on the list, way down comparatively. And uh, we see port 22 on the list as, uh, as well and some of this other P2P stuff. So looking at uh, the port 53, 413 UDP, and just as a reminder, this is uh, associated with the Netis home routers. They are, there's a whole line of these devices that are available. Uh, you can buy them on Amazon. I, I guess I'm not really recommending it at the moment because uh, I don't know which devices actually have the back door and which ones don't have that back door, uh, but there certainly are a number of them out there. It's much more popular to see these in Asia uh, than in the United States. But nevertheless, uh, this is looking at the last year of activity. As you can see, the activity well to the right, just the last uh, few days, several days, uh, it's actually quite through the roof. That is, on a given hour, we're seeing on the order of uh, in, uh, counting in the billions of probes per hour. Uh, if you look at that, and this is looking at IPv4 as address space predominantly, by the way. And so uh, if we consider how many probes it takes to get across the entire address space, there are theoretically uh, enough probes there to cover the entire address space in the course of an hour. It is we're not looking at the entire network here. We're just looking at the, uh, a small portion of it, relatively speaking, uh, to the entire address space. Uh, but as you can see on the bottom, the number of sources is not as significant. Now, to John's point, some of this activity could be spoofed. So you may have a number of contributors using the same source address. So that would help to explain the difference between the number of sources and the number of probes that are taking place there. But I guess my, my theory here is that it's actually um, compared to probing on a TCP port, this is a case where they're just tossing a packet out. And so it's significantly less expensive mm -hmm. processing wise to just toss a packet out and forget about it. And maybe the, the system responds to it than if you were to try to actually establish a TCP session and do password guessing and activities around that. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that's the reason why it appears that the performance activity in this case is much higher relative to the, uh, you know, the port 23 activity, which is the next graph here. Um, showing at the bottom, consistent with the last, we're seeing the number of sources that are scanning uh, on the top, the number of probes. And uh, this is relatively stable or consistent from what we've seen over the last few weeks. Um, um, you know, down slightly, but uh, not a significant change in activity. So that activity is continuing to go on. Again, this is generally uh, probing activity, doing password guessing attacks against uh, for the most part, these uh, closed circuit TV DVRs. And then uh, bringing back an old friend here, this is actually a backdoor port. This is 32764 TCP, and this is associated with home routers. This was actually, I think, documented around 2014 or so, and um, it was taken out, and then uh, there were actually some articles that claimed that it had been reintroduced, that is, this backdoor reintroduced to some devices. Um, uh, it was associated with Linksys devices, some Linksys devices, some Netgear devices, some uh, Cisco devices. 
Um, and maybe a lot of them have been patched and have been removed, but there still is some probing activity around this over the last 30 days. And I just thought it would be helpful to take a look at the geographic distribution of these devices. And where we're seeing most of them is actually in South Korea, in China. We see some in Vietnam. We also see some in uh, Europe and relatively few, comparatively speaking, in the United States. So uh, that's perhaps good news if you're in the United States, perhaps not so good news if you're living in China. So. And then uh, the uh, last but not least here, looking at the scan probes on, uh, uh, more generally speaking, remote desktop ports. So we have 3389, that's remote desktop protocol, and then 5900, which is virtual network computing, I think it is, or, mm -hmm. that's correct. Uh, and then 5901 is actually an alternate port. That is, a 5900 is already occupied. It, uh, it will sequence to the next port. And uh, what we're seeing here is actually, generally speaking, I think an increase in what we're seeing in terms of probing on remote desktop protocol that seems to have become more popular. Uh, we're looking at two years of activity here. So over the last, say, a uh, few months, uh, an increase in that probing activity. And then, but if we look at, in general, I think looking mostly in terms of the number of sources doing that scanning, uh, you saw that there were, you can see over to the left, there's more red there. That's associated with the uh, port 5900. Uh, and that has been diminishing, relatively speaking, to the uh, remote desktop protocol uh, sources that are probing for that. Now, we've seen in the past where, you know, even point of sale system registers have had remote desktop protocol yeah. enabled mm -hmm. uh, and accessible from the internet. That would be a big no-no if you're in the retail ISAC to be uh, describing that kind of scenario. But, it, it, you know, it's one of these cases that um, where uh, folks need to be paying attention to uh, what devices are actually exposed to the internet and um, how that could potentially be abused. So, especially like when you talked about the point of sale in small, uh, small businesses, like businesses yeah. like uh, restaurants and other things where they might have that point of sale being managed by some other third party for them. Mm -hmm. uh, remote desktop tends to be open, and they should have better controls around that. Yep, absolutely. So. Uh, pay attention to who you're outsourcing to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next item, or last, is the uh, daily reconnaissance index. We haven't looked at this in a while. So this is kind of like, uh, you know, looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the uh, NASDAQ, but the trending we desire to see is the opposite. Uh, we would like the reconnaissance index to go down, but uh, because of the contributions of the number of sources uh, increasing significantly, predominantly on Telnet, as well as the number of probes increasing significantly in Telnet, as well as on that port 53.413, you can see that our reconnaissance index has gone up significantly, and we're looking at about a year's worth of data here. Uh, there are a couple of gaps in there. Occasionally, our report doesn't generate exactly correctly, so uh, that explains the gaps. But as you can see, our uh, reconnaissance index is up over 100. This is, we've been tracking this index since uh, back in the Sasser worm days. And this is the first time that has exceeded 100 since that time. I think we calibrated it around 90 at that time. So mm -hmm. uh, it gives a little bit of a reference point. So uh, lots more sources scanning, lots more probes taking place, uh, and none of them with the intent of doing good. 
So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. Uh, there's also a link off of the, uh, off the uh, Tech Channel page so that you can uh, contact us from there. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube and it's available as an audio podcast on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. And uh, final plug for you, uh, Patrick, here. Uh, visit Roots, that's r00tz.org for info on the Roots Asylum and uh, get your kids involved in that event. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Patrick, for joining us today. Uh, thank you, John Hogaboom. Thank you, Matt Kaiser. Sure. I especially like the book review. It was my favorite today. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.